All right, so several years ago, Tisa and I began reading through the Bible. And the first year that we got to today's text, Tisa came up to me. She's like, see, even Jesus got hangry. Now, now you're chuckling, so maybe you have. But I don't know if you've ever heard of this term, hangry, before. Have you heard it? <laughs> yeah. Some husbands said, yes. <laughs> I never heard of it until I married Tisa. Totally foreign to me. Foreign topic. Now I have seen it firsthand. Hangry is a compound of hungry mixed with angry. So I'll never forget one time we were on a road trip, and I'm sure I'm probably like most guys, and Tisa's like most gals. On road trips, they like to stop along the way at different restaurants, do shopping, stop here, stop there. But I just want to drive through with as little stops as possible, get there early for check-in so I can go to sleep. That's me, right? Tisa likes to stop and eat. And I remember after several hours of driving, I experienced hanger for the first time. Everything I said, everything I did was wrong. Husbands, have you been there? Okay, I'm not alone. My mild-mannered, gentle, sweet wife turned into this cute little version of the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> Why did this happen to her? Because Tisa was hangry. So I stopped at the next gas station, bought her a bag of potato chips, and it was amazing that after just a couple chips, how she just reverted back to my sweet and endearing wife. Now, Tisa believes that Jesus, in today's text, experienced hanger. And I don't disagree with her theologically, because what she is saying actually fits with what the Bible teaches us about Jesus. What sets Christianity apart from the world's religions and from the world's philosophies is that we believe that God is three in one. He is three persons, one God, Father, Son, Spirit. And Jesus is two natures in one person. He is 100% God, and he is 100% man. Eastern religions don't see God this way. God is entity. God is energy. God is spirit. It can inhabit rocks or rivers or take on avatars. But gods are not physical. They're not corporeal. Greek mythology, which was once the religion of the West, believed that gods are not human. They were created by the Titans before them. They can take on the form of humanity, and they can have relationships with humanity and bear children. But those children are not fully God. They are demi-gods, half-man, half-god. Judaism and Islam believe that there is only one God, and he is God. He is one. This God does not take on flesh. That's, that's not what they believe. But Christianity teaches that Jesus is the second person in the Godhead, or what we call Trinity, and that he is 100% God, and he is 100% man. This is unique, and it is essential 
for Christians and for Christianity. It is what makes us unique of every other idea on this planet today. Even Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox Christians, they may disagree on many things. But this is one thing that Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox Christians do not disagree on. Three persons, one God, Jesus, two natures, and one person. Now, throughout the spring, we've been doing this untying the knots of difficult and hard things that Jesus has said. And we have addressed together as a church how sometimes Christians, sometimes churches, sometimes whole denominations have misinterpreted and misapplied many of the things that Jesus has said. And we have addressed why people do this, why denominations do this, why churches do this. They either take Jesus' words right out of its context, or they don't use scripture to explain what scripture means. They don't ask God, hey God, what did you mean by this? And then look for something else God said to help us understand. Or they apply their understanding of words based on our cultural experiences and conditioning. And then we say God must mean that because that's how we understand that word or concept. Today, we're to take up another difficult knot to untie. And that brings us to our proposition. So our proposition is the idea that I pray. This is why I pray for you every single week. God, move your people to experience this truth. And I try to consolidate it into a statement. And this is it for today. That the experience and the extension of forgiveness in Christ is the proof of God's work of genuine faith in you. That's my prayer for you all this week. American Christianity can be misleading to both Christians and especially to non-Christians. Ironically, the American church is the most confusing during the events of Holy Week and what churches decide to focus on during Holy Week and during the Christmas season. At the times when American church should be the most clear and simple and straightforward, we get really, really complex and complicated with what we do with this thing that we call church. And what happens is that oftentimes American Christianity emphasizes things that ultimately do not matter during this season. And as a result, American Christianity paints an unclear picture as to what a real Christian looks like. But here at Heritage, we come at it with a different approach, right? We are not naive to think that merely because someone says that they are a Christian or that they attend a church or they've been baptized, that they are really a Christian. There are greater proofs out there than just being at church. Many confuse and replace genuine Christianity with religious practice. And religious practice can be misleading. It can mislead people into thinking that another person is a Christian. You do X plus Y plus Z, it equals Christian. But this presents a false picture of what Christianity is to non-Christians. But here's the essence. If you replace a personal relationship with Jesus, with religion, it is going to lead to hypocrisy. It's going to present something to the people in your life, whether they are Christian or non-Christian. 
It's going to present something to them on the outside that isn't true of you on the inside. And that is the occasion, the motivation behind what Jesus says today in our heart saying. So Jesus entered Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago on this Sunday. We read it moments ago. That was the first Palm Sunday. And on the outside, we read it, there was much celebration. There was clapping. There was shouting. They were celebrating Jesus as their coming son of David. They had this anticipation that Jesus was going to walk into Jerusalem. He was going to retake his father David's throne. He was going to push back politically against the Roman Empire and reestablish the glory of Israel. They shouted, Hosanna to Jesus. This was all on the cusp, on the very edge of the most important Jewish celebration on their calendar called Passover. Jews from all over the Roman Empire are gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate the historical events of God using Moses to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Did you watch Heston's Ten Commandments last night on TV by chance? Because it always comes on during this time of the year. I I only know because my my in-laws watched it last night. Jews were in Jerusalem to slay their Passover lamb to atone for the sins of their previous year so they could go about their lives and feel like they're justified with God. There was so much activity, so much buzz going around Jerusalem that it looked like genuine religious practice. But by the time that the sun set on Friday, which began the next day, which was Passover, Jesus would be crucified and dead on a Roman cross. Therefore, the proof of God's work of genuine faith wasn't celebrating Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and shouting Hosanna, nor was it Passover. The proof of God's genuine work in a person is how they resolve anger, and bitterness, and frustration, and resentment in their hearts, first between themselves and God, and then horizontally between themselves and people. Today, we see Jesus use a fig tree to illustrate this, and we will see how Jesus connects this fig tree to what religious hypocrisy and unforgiveness do in the human heart. All right, so that's where we're going today. You ready to get started? All right, our first point, we are going to see this, that Jesus curses that fig tree to illustrate, to paint a picture of the end of all hypocrisy, what religious hypocrisy looks like in its totality at the end. After the first Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem, he comes into the temple, and then he immediately leaves for Bethany. We know why Jesus left for Bethany. We sing about it moments ago, singing about Lazarus, right? He wanted to see Mary and Martha and Lazarus before the events later on of Holy Week and into Passover. So on Monday, so tomorrow of our Holy Week, Jesus leaves Bethany to go back to Jerusalem. It's early morning, and he sees a fig tree in the distance. And Jesus is, let me say it with Vernon's inflection, Jesus is hungry. Did I say that right? Hungry. 
Jesus approaches this fig tree, and there's no fruit on it. And Mark tells us why there's no fruit. Passover takes place somewhere in March and April, depending on a particular moon that was the same moon that the Israelites left when Pharaoh said, get out of my country. I'm tired of what your God is doing to us. Take your people and go. They celebrate Passover on that same moon every single year. During this time of the year, March, April, there are no figs yet on trees in Palestine. In March, though, fig trees begin to develop foliage on their branches, and small knobs begin to develop on the tree. And I want to show you a picture of what this looked like, and it should be coming up right now. Eventually, these knobs right here, they fall off and the creatures get to eat them. It's cute. Farmers use these knobs as indicators, as harbingers of whether they would receive a fig harvest that year. In modern Palestinian Arabic, these knobs are called taquash. That's what they call them today. When Jesus came up to the fig tree, there was no taquash on this tree. That meant this fig tree was never going to produce figs. Never going to happen. So let's take a look at Jesus' reaction now in verse 14. Jesus speaks to this fig tree and says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then Mark tells us, that his disciples were listening. See, we see two things here. Jesus curses the fig tree. My wife thinks that Jesus did this out of anger. I don't disagree with her. Jesus is every bit human as we are, which means Jesus experienced thirst. Jesus experienced hunger. And Jesus experienced heartbreak. He knew what it's like for friends to hurt him, for family to hurt him. He knew what it's like to see people die. But because Jesus is God, this means that Jesus is up to something far more than just expressing anger. Mark tells us that Jesus' disciples were listening. So after this, Jesus enters Jerusalem. Remember, this is still Monday of Holy Week. Jesus enters Jerusalem's temple, and he once again becomes angry by what he sees in Jerusalem's temple. So you have to keep this in mind. Jesus was already angry at the fruitlessness of this fig tree. And now Jesus is angry, even though there was activity, he was angry with the fruitlessness of what was going on in Jerusalem's temple. Jesus is angry because of the hypocrisy that he sees in Jerusalem's temple. And what I want to present to you right now is that for you to understand the hard thing Jesus says later in our text, you have to connect these two events and use it to understand why Jesus said what he said. So Jesus clears the temple, right? He drives out those who are using the temple for profits. Jesus turned over the tables, right? He flipped seats. This would be some Hollywood episodes right here. And Jesus wouldn't allow anybody to enter the temple who wanted to sell merchandise. So what's going on here? This is righteous anger. These are the days leading up to Passover. 
when the Jews are gathering and remembering and celebrating how God delivered their ancestors from literal slavery and how God provided a Passover lamb to atone for their sins spiritually, for their spiritual slavery. The temple in Jerusalem was a place for the Jews to gather to experience God, to express what God has been doing in their lives. When you enter Jerusalem's temple, you are there for prayer and to express your enjoyment of what God is doing for you. But instead, this day, this Monday of Holy Week, the temple was barren, just as barren as that fig tree. Even though there was foliage, even though there was activity going on in the temple. It was a, supposed to be a place of prayer. Instead, it was a place for profit. It looked like the tree would bear fruit. But in Jerusalem's temple that day, there was no to quash, and there wasn't ever going to be. Jesus curses the fruitlessness of the fig tree to connect it to the empty religious practice of Jerusalem's temple worship during that age. Now I want you to see really quick how people responded to what Jesus did on Monday of Holy Week. It comes from verse 18. Listen to this. Mark tells us that the chief priests and the scribes, they heard about what Jesus did. And they began seeking how to destroy him. Why? Because they were afraid. They were afraid because the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Not their teaching, not their authority, not their power, but Jesus' power. Jesus' authority, Jesus' teaching. The religious elite, you have to remember, first century Palestine was not a democracy like here in America. Jerusalem was a theocracy. And Rome was governing them politically. The religious elite were allowed to still have authority in Jerusalem, to practice their power, to oversee religion in Jerusalem. And they wanted to destroy Jesus for what he did in the temple that day. They too were angry, but it wasn't righteous anger. By and large, people lack the ability to rightly process people when they say or do things that challenge how they want to live. Would you agree with that? We've talked about this time and time again in Heritage this spring that one of the problems we have with Jesus, and we either try to water Jesus down or to ignore him, is that we have not been taught as Americans but how to simply have a conversation with another human when they tell us, you've done something wrong and you need to fix it. We want to fight against them. We want to push them away. We want to blame them. We want to stiff arm them, right? We're like this. They're like this because we, too, are human. The religious authorities had anger and bitterness and contempt and jealousy in their hearts towards Jesus. And the seeds of anger and jealousy and bitterness and resentment grows into a fruit. And that fruit is called unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is a byproduct of an unrepentant heart that can't hear that you're going in the wrong direction and turn around. That's the end of hypocrisy unrepentance. So Jesus, he leaves the temple. He leaves Jerusalem again. It's now Tuesday of Holy Week. 
The next day, they're going back into Jerusalem, and the disciples see the fig tree. And I guess they kind of, you know, elbow Peter and say, you're always one who speaks up. Say something about this. And so Peter goes to Jesus, and he asks a question. Rabbi, like this fig tree, like what's going on with it? Now Mark tells us a detail, that this fig tree actually withered from the roots up. There wasn't some outside power from the outside in that caused its deadness for it to wither and die. It came from the roots on up. So Peter speaks up. He asks Jesus about the withered fig tree. Now let's take a look at how Jesus responds. Because this is our hard statement that we have to untie today before we get to eat. Verses 22 and 24. Here's what Jesus says. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, and you have to remember, Jerusalem is surrounded by seven hills. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, cast into the sea, and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, if you just believe that you've received them, and they will be granted you. And here's a tension. We could spend the rest of Holy Week commiserating together of all the things that we have prayed for that has not come to pass, right? We could revisit the nostalgia and the hurts of the past of everything that we have prayed, and God said no, right? So we have a very human and emotional reaction to this verse. But heritage, I have to caution you. Let's not rip this verse out of its context. Let's remember that its book ended with the fig tree and the temple. And we must use these two pictures to help us really understand what Jesus is saying here. This verse has been misinterpreted and misapplied by Christians and churches and denominations for about 200 years. In America... An idea in Christianity began to sprout during America's revivals after the Enlightenment period. And this idea became very popular in the revival circuits of Pentecostalism. When you take verses 22 and 24 out of its context, you can see how easy it is to misinterpret this, right? How easy it is to misapply it. When you don't know about the fig tree that happened before this, when you don't know what Jesus did in the temple before this, and all you have is this verse, you can understand the power of positive thinking, right? The power of your spoken word, the power of your belief. And that really fits, and it's really relevant in American culture about self-expression, self-belief. This fits well into America today. So it claims that if you believe in God, if you believe in yourself, if you don't doubt, you can move mountains. If you believe in God and believe in yourself and do not doubt, you will receive all that you pray for. Oh, but Christian, let me remind you of this, and I said this last week. This type of faith puts way too much pressure and onus on you. It makes you out to be God. And you do not have broad enough shoulders to handle being the God of your life. 
that puts too much pressure on you that X didn't happen in your life because you doubted, because you weren't strong enough, because you weren't good enough. And that is not the message of the gospel, nor is it the message of Christianity, because there's no amount of religious activity that can move a mountain. Okay. Last week's hard saying and last week's way that we untie the knot is actually the same process by, why, by which we untie today's knot. So if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to listen to how we untied the knot in last week's sermon. It is impossible for you to move mountains with your word. Can you imagine saying, Everest, let's go. Denali, get into the sea. No, you cannot do this. So whatever this mountain is that Jesus refers to, there's no amount of self-belief. There's no amount of faith in your words that can move the mountain. The point is it's impossible. Someone bigger than you has to move whatever this mountain is. And as Christians, we say only God can move whatever this mountain is. And what I want to present to you today because of the connection of this statement to what's going on in context, is that there are two mountains that Jesus is referring to here. There are two impossible things that are going on. The first mountain is a dead, hard, and unrepentant heart of those gathered in Jerusalem. They think that they're good people following God, and they are worthy to receive what they're going to receive at Passover forgiveness for another year. They think they are faithfully following God, but their religion is self-serving. Jesus cursed the fig tree to illustrate what the end looks like for religious hypocrisy. Jesus cursed the fig tree to illustrate what was going on in many Israelites in the first century. Because by and large, Israel rejected Jesus. They welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday because he thought they thought he was the son of David who was going to reestablish the power, the glory, the political might of Israel and put Rome in their place. Get back to Europe. Get back to the West. This is the East. This is our country. That's what they thought Jesus would do. When it was clear that Jesus wasn't there for political reasons, they rejected him. And on Good Friday, we will recount the many ways that Israel rejected Messiah. But here's the thing that we acknowledge as Christians, and this is what differentiates us from the world's religions. A rejection of Jesus is, in essence, a rejection of God. You cannot have God without Jesus because Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. Three persons, one God. Now, you have to know this as well to kind of connect the dots. Throughout the Jewish scriptures, it's very Jewish to use the image of the fig tree to illustrate them as a country, to illustrate them as a people. You have to take my word for it right now. But Hosea did this. If you read through the prophet Hosea, you will see how Hosea illustrates Israel by calling her a fig tree. And the prophet Jeremiah also did this numerous times as well in his writing. Israel is like a fig tree, and any good Jew during this time would know this. The fig tree withered from the roots on out 
to illustrate the deadness of what was going on inside the hearts of those who rejected Jesus. They are busy doing religious activity, preparing for Passover, seeing family and friends and cousins getting ready for Passover. But there is nothing going on in the heart for God. They are celebrating Passover from the wrong motives. Their response to Jesus when he cleared the temple from prophets is proof of what's going on in their hearts. Now, the second mountain that Jesus is addressing here is anger, bitterness, resentment, and what it does to the heart. It bears, it has to quash, and it bears fruit, and it's called unforgiveness. Unforgiveness destroys a person's experience and enjoyment of God. Unforgiveness seeks out ways to destroy the other. So we ask, who can change the hearts of literal sons and daughters of Abraham? Who has the power to change the nature of the human heart still today? And the distinct Christian answer is this. Only Jesus can. Amen? Amen. That's how we untie the knot. First century Israel, by and large, were hard-hearted and immovable about Jesus. How can he be the son of God? How can he be Ben Elohim? Don't we know his dad? Isn't he the carpenter? Right? They stumbled over him. So they were withered, dead from the inside out. And the fig tree is illustration of this. They harbored anger and bitterness and resentment towards Jesus. They didn't know how to accept. They didn't know how to respond to Jesus and his teaching and his exhortation. So here it is. When unchecked, these emotions in the human heart will bear the fruit of unforgiveness in us. And the gospel presents hope to you today that only Jesus and Jesus alone has the power to move the mountain of unforgiveness in your heart. Only Jesus has the power to move the mountain of religious hypocrisy, doing things externally when there's nothing going on on the inside. So you may be here today, and whether you acknowledge it right now, and thankfully I'm not going to ask you, this is between you and God, but you may have anger and bitterness and hurt and resentment in your heart towards Jesus or towards a Christian or towards a church or towards a family member or to some other non-Christian. But here's a caution, left unchecked. And these emotions will bear fruit. These emotions will bear the fruit of unforgiveness in your heart. And the end result is that you will wither up and you will die spiritually. And then one day you will wither up and you will die physically with that unforgiveness ravaging your life. So this Palm Sunday, I have to ask before we move to application, is this you? Are you withering? Are you leaving anger and bitterness and hurt and resentment unchecked in your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with people? So we ask, so we can move on as this. How do we not wither? How do we check anger and hurt and resentment and sorrow when it comes our way? 
because the people of Jesus also do something distinct from the rest of the world's philosophies and religions. We take anger and hurt and resentment and bitterness when it comes our way, when it enters into our hearts, and we leave it at the cross. And that's where we're going for application. Let's get to our point of application now. So my call for you today, this is what I want you to consider when you're having a great time eating smoked turkey and all those wonderful southern sides and playing some cornhole. In the midst of all that, you know how you can think in your mind and your heart. I want you to consider these things for a couple minutes. And the call today is that you experience forgiveness with God to extend Christ-like forgiveness to others. And that's what they were missing in the temple. This week, we are focusing on the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. That's Friday and that's Sunday together. But as you go through Holy Week, you have to do so by looking at your heart. Are you struggling with anger, bitterness, resentment towards Jesus, towards another Christian, towards his church, towards a family member? If you are, you have to learn two things from Jesus' heart saying today. The first is this. You are going to continue to experience anger and bitterness and resentment because you're a fallen creature. This is a fallen world. And you build relationships with fallen people. Even if they are a Christian, we are still all broken. Beautifully broken, but broken still. You cannot deal with those emotions on your own. They are too big of mountains for you to move with your words. If you deal with it alone, it will lead to unforgiveness. And unforgiveness destroys God's work in your life because the primary way that God works in your life is through people, specifically through the body of Christ, which is the church. But if God has worked faith into you, we can respond differently to anger and bitterness and hurt and resentment. Those emotions can be tended to when those weeds sprout up in our garden. You tend to those emotions by taking those emotions to the cross. There is no shame, therefore, in your relationship with Jesus to acknowledge to him, I'm angry. I'm bitter right now. This has happened in my life. I prayed for this. This happened. I'm bitter with you. And for that, we remember the example of Job, right? All those things he said, he said it to God in prayer. God, I'm hurt. I wish I wasn't born. I have nothing. I'm broken. Christians tend to the emotions of their heart by taking it to the cross. This is what Holy Week is all about. The Jewish leaders in Jesus' time did not handle their anger and bitterness in a way that honored God. And they were the religious leaders of the day. They are the ones training and teaching other Jews to love and follow God. That was the hypocrisy. It led to unforgiveness, and it led them to crucify Jesus just before sundown on Passover. But here's the hope, and it is so sweet. God uses and used their anger their hatred, their unforgiveness to forever display that the one and only Passover lamb is Jesus 
son of man, son of David. We can never disassociate any Jewish Passover now from the cross of Jesus. And we'll talk more about that on Friday. Therefore, Christian, no matter how you feel, and no matter what loved ones may communicate to you, you are not a fool for putting your hope in Jesus. Remember, the world sees things upside down. You're not a fool. You're actually wise to know that your shoulders aren't broad enough to bear these things. Only one set of shoulders is, and that's the God-man. The only way you can extend real forgiveness in your relationships is to experience it for yourself for the first time and then again and again and again in Jesus. Let's get to our final verse, verse 25. Jesus, after he says that hard saying, he says this. He says, so whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. What is Jesus saying here? Now, in first century Judaism, it's not like 21st century American Christianity. First century Jews prayed by standing and with their hands outstretched to the heavens. Because of contemporary worship music of the past 50 years or so, Christians do this in worship. That's a posture of prayer for a Jew in the first century. That's why Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. This is a prayer posture, not a worship song posture. As you gather together to pray and to worship God, this means part of your praying to God must include forgiveness. Forgiveness, I mean, prayer is more than just asking for God to heal people who are physically hurt in your life. Prayer is a time for you to experience the forgiveness of the cross time and time again. So one of the reasons why we should lift our hands to God in prayer is to express our need for forgiveness. That's what that means right there. Gathering together as a congregation is an opportunity to experience forgiveness with God and then to extend that forgiveness to others. Because being a church family, we are going to say and do things that rub each other the wrong way, right? That's why this is our laboratory to practice what it means to be a Christian. And then for others who are not Christian to see how we love each other. Because you know what? There's no practical American compatibility reason for why I love Vernon. He is completely opposite to me. Right? Hunter, he eats venison. And he's hungry. All right? What binds us together isn't compatibility, but the blood of Christ. So when I practice forgiveness with that man, there's no horse in the game. There's no selfish motivation that he's my blood. We share the same chromosomes, the same DNA. No, no, no. There's no literal reason for why I should extend forgiveness to him unless Jesus has changed me, unless I have experienced forgiveness first with him. Think about it this way. Is there a single motive or thought or feeling or word or action that God the Father has not forgiven you of in Jesus? Can you think of a single thing from yesterday, today, or tomorrow? No. That forgiveness, that atonement is total. Why is this? 
Because at the cross, Jesus took on all your sins and all your offenses and all of your sorrows. And thank God for that. This is what God the Father wants you to experience in his son time and time again. And this is what God the Father wants you to experience about his son this week during Holy Week. The cross is an ocean of forgiveness. Jesus paid the cost for your sins. Jesus took the toll for all of the offenses that have been done against you and all of your sorrows. So are you harboring anger, bitterness, resentment in your heart? Are you saying, hey, anger, hey, bitterness, hey, resentment, come on, I'll give you safe harbor. Come on in. Bring it on in. Just bring it on in right here, and I'll harbor you. Are you doing that right now? Don't let it bear the fruit of unforgiveness. If you are still alive, if your heart is still pumping blood and your brain is still sending out impulses, this means there is still time. Take it to the cross. One set of shoulders is broad enough to deal with all the things that you've said and done and all the things that have been said and done to you. And that's the cross of Jesus. Not religious activity but the cross. Those who hurt you cannot pay the full cost of justice. They cannot pay the full cost to atone for what they have done to you. And we only need to remember what has happened in our country historically the past couple years of senseless deaths. No mother is happy with a guilty verdict for police officers. No mother in their heart of hearts says, okay, full justice has been served. And that's a reminder. There is only one person that can fully pay, fully atone for the sins and the offenses and the sorrows of your hearts. And that is the God-man Jesus. Those who have offended you cannot satisfy the justice that they deserve. You do not have the power to pay them back. Though sometimes we like to you know, think through of scenarios where we'd like to do the people who hurt us, right? Only the cross of Jesus can satisfy the demands of justice. As man, Jesus felt all your sins, all your sorrows, and all your offenses. But as God, that's why Jesus has to be not demigod, 100% God, 100% man. Because as God, Jesus alone can fully atone for all the things that you've done and all the things that have been done against you. Because Jesus is no sinner. He's perfect holy, complete. So on this Palm Sunday, I beg you to make a move against unforgiveness, to make a move against hypocrisy, and take it to the cross instead. Experience a new forgiveness in Jesus. And through time, you will let go of that anger and that bitterness and that resentment because you will experience that Jesus already took those things on his shoulders on the cross. And you will bear fruits again. You will experience the joy of forgiveness. And you'll begin to extend that forgiveness to others. And you will be kind and tender-hearted to people when they fall, when they fall short, because you experience the kindness and the tenderness of what God has done for you 
in Christ Jesus. Amen?